from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. I met Peggy a few years after I graduated from college. And in the intervening 30 years, uh, she has been a constant presence in my life and in the world that has consumed my life as a curator. That's Thelma Golden, director and chief curator of the Studio Museum in Harlem. Peggy's is the collector every artist dreams about. It wasn't just about getting your work and she moves on. She really cares about the artists she collects. And that is Nigerian-American artist Njedeka Ankunula Crosby. It wasn't like she bought a piece and vanished. She, she bought a piece and still, you know, showed that this was not about wanting your work. I care about you as a person. And I believe in you and I love you and I want you to do well. <laughs> They're talking about the great art collector Peggy Cooper Kafritz. And I wanted to talk to Peggy, too, because of her groundbreaking art collection. It features a who's who of black artists from the last 30 years, including Carol Walker, Terry James Marshall, Kahinda Wiley, and many more. Peggy also co-founded the great Duke Ellington School for the Arts in Washington, D.C., A few weeks ago, my producer Zoe Saunders and I had our Amtrak tickets in hand about to go down to D.C. to spend the afternoon with Peggy at her home. We'd look at her collection together, and Peggy and I would talk about her gorgeous new book about her art and her life. We were actually going to meet the day the book was being published. But then we got the news. Peggy had suddenly died from pneumonia. She was only 70. I asked Thelma Golden how she and Peggy met. At an opening. I had seen her picture, and I knew who she was, and I introduced myself to her. And then I went on to tell her of my aspiration to be a curator, and particularly a curator devoted to the work of black artists. And in what has come to characterize Peggy's dealings with everyone, she immediately took that on board as her aspiration and immediately embraced me, literally and figuratively, and became a deep part of the person who I've become. Uh, So her art collection, uh, tell me about that. Was her collection quirky or was it what any encyclopedic curator of work by artists of African descent would have put together? You know, Peggy didn't take the term collector easily. She didn't think of herself so much as a collector. And I think that is because she really did imagine herself more as a steward, someone who, in collecting these works, was shining a light on the work of artists of African descent. But yes, her collection was incredibly idiosyncratic. And I think that is its brilliance. Peggy collected through her eyes, but also with her heart. 
In her stewardship, Peggy championed the work of younger black artists, including African-born ones. Way before Acuna Crosby became a MacArthur genius last year, she was one of those artists lucky enough to get Peggy's attention. One of her paintings is the cover of Peggy's book. She has a good eye. She's able to figure out what she likes, and she will invest in something. So when she became interested in me, I wasn't where I am right now, but she didn't care. She wanted to buy the work because she loved it and she believed in it. Thelma Golden says Peggy collected work at the very beginnings of artists' careers, before anybody else. She often followed them through their careers, but she was critical at the beginning. And quite often, Peggy would acquire early, and for many artists, it would be an absolute turning point for them. And to an artist, you hear in these weeks since her passing, these testimonials about Peggy's early and complete support of them. She was always invested in my practice as an artist, being one that was long and one that was fruitful. So she always sent me articles to read. She always would give me legal advice or just advice in general. And if there were situations where she felt I could, I should meet someone, she would help make that connection. Peggy was a connector for artists. Once she collected an artist, she brought them into her world. And that world was wide and it was vast and it was incredibly diverse. And so for many of these artists, they also were brought into many opportunities through Peggy. Meet other people who could buy their work, for instance. Meet other people who might buy their work, certainly, but perhaps even more importantly, meet other artists of the generation before them who influenced their work, meet the museum professionals around the country interested in uh, work of their particular kind of artwork, to be able to connect broadly in a culture world through this community created by Peggy was an incredible gift. Artists talk about her so much as an amazing patron of the arts. And I think because she was involved, that she's been involved in the arts for so long, she did know people from every generation. So from established people like Kerry James Marshall and Hank Willis Thomas, but she also was a patron and friend and supporter of people who, say, finished grad school a year ago. And so it was one of those, like, all roads lead to Peggy things. She spent decades amassing this important collection. But then, in 2009... Her house burned down in a terrible, awful fire, one that incinerated the entire house and, of course, um, everything in it. Uh, Thank goodness no one was injured in this fire at all. What I thought of immediately was just the many times I'd spent in that home, in rooms, remembering works of art on different walls of Peggy's home. But what happened right after the fire was incredible, and that was many artists reached out to her knowing that their works had been burned in the fire. And rather than bemoan that fact, many of them created works for Peggy and sent them to her, knowing how important it was for her to live among artworks. And so Peggy began to collect again. And in many ways, the collection she made was similar to the one that burned, but also very different. Uh, Other than having this sort of social mission behind the kind of art she collected, what, in your view, really distinguished her from 
the typical collector, if, if you can make that uh, distinction. At core, Peggy had an artistic mission in her collecting. That is, she saw these works and these artists as being important to our understanding of art and art history. Um, the subtitle of the book, An African-American Life in Art, I think is very important also because it not only refers to Peggy's life in art, but it also refers, very importantly, to representation. And I think Peggy was deeply committed to the way in which art added to our conversation about representation. It was a way in which to live inside of an ideal that was so much a part of her upbringing, right, equality, equity, justice, but also to allow that, allow art to be a part of this greater civic conversation. I think everyone will get a chance to really understand the joy and the beauty with which Peggy lived her life through this book. I am very grateful to have it in this moment and really grateful that so many people will have it for generations to come. Peggy Cooper Caverton's new book, Fired Up, Ready to Go, is out now. Zoe Saunders produced that story. Richard Clinn listens to our show in New York's Hudson Valley, where we air on WAMC. Right near Woodstock, Kingston, that area. I don't know if that means anything to your listeners. He's a culture writer and author. I've written two works of nonfiction, and my first novel is called Petroleum Transfer Engineer. So Richard is generally comfortable writing and talking about music and movies and books that he likes. But... He has kept one of his favorite songs a secret for years, even from his friends and family. He revealed it to us for our series, Guilty Pleasures. I grew up in South Jersey, right outside Atlantic City, pre-casino Atlantic City. And the music growing up at first, it was sort of really wretched top 40 fare. And I really mean top 40. I mean, I would follow the weekly countdown and write down the various song positions. And I bought singles, Gilbert O'Sullivan, stuff like that. In a little while from now, if I'm not feeling any less sound, I promise myself to treat myself and visit a nearby town. But when I was a teenager, the real interest was prog rock. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and yes, and I really went whole hog for it. I had the Roger Dean posters and the three album um, Yes songs, live Yes set. This is the 70s, and in some ways it's hard to convey what a smaller world it was. And I think that if you're not that aware of classical music, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer are sophisticated. Rick Wakeman's Six Wives of Henry VIII feels like a step up from the top 40. You know, I didn't go around patting my back about how grown up I was, but it felt very deep. It's deep music for people who don't know about deep music, in a way. It's all sort of horrible when I, when I look back on it. 
but I have to confess my guilty pleasure. I heard it in a particularly melancholy moment in my life. It was college. I was looking out at the sort of bleak vista outside my dorm window of sort of this deserted little scene, a streetlight. And somewhere it was playing at that exact moment. The song, unfortunately, is Babe by the band Styx. Babe starts out with a Fender Rhodes classic top 40 keyboard sound from the 70s and 80s, sort of like what you would hear at a lounge somewhere. Dennis DeYoung begins his singing with the sincerity of somebody who's sort of unaware that you're not supposed to sound that way. I mean, I think that's what makes the song sort of affecting and ridiculous both in a way. Like Dennis Young's vocals are just uber emotive, dripping with sentiment. There's no irony whatsoever to what Dennis DeYoung is doing. Like a Fender Rhodes is cliched. Uber emotive vocals are a cliche. Babe doesn't know it's a cliche. There's sort of a bombastic little guitar solo halfway through. Like even then, that was sort of cliche. There's the line, and I'll need your love to see me through. So please believe me, my heart is in your hands. There's nothing silly about the sentiment. We've all had that sentiment. The silly factor is being post age 14 and putting it down like that. It's very simple, simple and, and sort of hackneyed. I looked at the video, and there are these fervent comments, lots and lots of fervent comments, and very emotional, too, about, you know, somebody remembers a loved one who died, and that conjures up memories of that. It was someone's wedding song. Um, a couple of people said that you know, the song brought them to tears. Somebody wrote that anybody who dislikes this video is heartless. These people, like, really, really love it, for real. You know, it's not a guilty pleasure. It's not a cliche. The song is genuinely affecting. I am the modern man. I mean, it sounds so funny. I mean, Styx is huge. I, was, I had no idea. I mean, now they look completely cheesy. You know, the costumes are sort of ornate. The hair is very attended to. There's mustache action over there, for sure. They're exactly what you think they would look like. If you listen to Sticks and listen to Babe, you can visualize exactly what they look like. My heart is in your hands I'll be missing you 
listening to prog rock, I can sort of defend. I put myself back in being 16. A lot of the stuff has context. Babe, I love you. But liking Styx as Babe has no context whatsoever. Babe, I love you. To me, that's a true guilty pleasure. So true. That's Richard Klin. His first novel, Petroleum Transfer Engineer, is being published presently. Jocelyn Gonzalez and Tommy Bazarian produced that story. Have you got some secret favorite song that you'd never let your friends catch you singing? Or maybe a building or app or TV commercial that you love that might raise eyebrows? If so, reveal and defend it in an email or voice memo that you send to incoming at studio360.org, and we might give you a call. Coming up, what it's like to live with the delusion that you're being filmed all the time because your entire life is some kind of reality show. Everybody's in on it. And everything I'm doing is because I'm supposed to do it, and I'm supposed to do it to make a good scene for the show. Olympic athlete Kevin Hall on living with the Truman Show disorder. That's next in Studio 360. I was back on the show, and there were things I was supposed to do. Let's see, I walked by the National Theater. I stole a truck somehow. There was a truck parked. There were keys there. I drove around. Fortunately, I was aware enough not to hurt anybody or myself at the time. I walked across the street with my eyes closed to confirm to myself that the show was really happening, because if it weren't happening, I would just get run over and my pain could end. In the movie The Truman Show, Jim Carrey's character, Truman, thinks he's living this delightfully normal life in a perfectly prosperous little town. Good morning! Morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. What the character in the movie does not realize is that it's not normal or real. It's all staged. He is the star of a huge hit reality TV show, and this was 1998, before reality shows were really a thing. Every encounter Jim Carrey's character has is scripted, sometimes to serve advertisers. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? But for Kevin Hall, life is just the opposite of that movie. Kevin is a real person. He's got a mental disorder known as the Truman Show Delusion. Kevin's a a world-class sailor, been on multiple America's Cups teams and on the 2004 U.S. Olympic team. But he regularly believes that his life is being filmed for a non-existent TV show, of which he's the star. I'm compelled in my instance to do something or go somewhere or say something or listen into a conversation that makes other people uncomfortable. In my mind, in my delusional state, I think I'm supposed to do that, and they don't know that, so it makes them very uncomfortable. Listening, overhearing somebody in life? Yeah, and thinking Uh it's about me. It's for me. It's to help me know what to do next. And then at times it's actually a voice. Go get on the bus. 
That voice is what Kevin calls the director. In his delusions, he receives messages from the director about how he's supposed to behave or communicate, all for the benefit of the show. Mary Pallon learned about Kevin's story when she was a sports reporter for The New York Times. So I reached out and I said, hey, I'm trying to find Kevin Hall. You know, I, I just have a few questions. And I started out thinking I was just going to write a Sunday story. I had no idea it was going to be a 300-page book. Her book about him and his life and his peculiar showbiz psychosis is called The Kevin Show. Mary was drawn to Kevin's story because of his life as a world-class sportsman. One of the things you see in person and when you spend a lot more time around something like the Olympics is how psychologically taxing this world is and how completely different that lifestyle is. And what is it like to spend so much of your life training for a few seconds that you get a shot at once every four years? I mean, in journalism, nobody says every four years we're going to line you up and rank you one, two, and three, and the rest of you are going to be forgotten. Maybe shame your families and countries while you're at it. I mean, just the stakes of it when you're there in person— totally are so different. And and so, Kevin, um, you have been sailing all your life. You were a serious sailor and athlete uh, as a kid. When did these episodes start happening to you? My junior year of college, I uh, had been sailing every day, and I changed my regime a bit to try and be on the Olympic team. And I went from a regular schedule of on the water to not being on the water nearly every day with the team. And I got lost. I was struggling a little bit with my coursework. I was anxious about midterms. I started sort of staying up all night cramming, drinking a lot of extra coffee. Um, Being a college student. (laughs) Yeah, being a college student, but I guess my system just over-responded to it. I think a lot of it was just literally around fear of failure, that I had never failed at anything before. In fact, I was a world champion when I was 16, and I wasn't really the kind of person who was good at failing. And I have a big imagination, and so my imagination said, well, we can fix that. Instead of you being a guy at college with a bunch of other smart people who's struggling a little bit, let's just make you the center of the universe. And very smart people. You were at Brown University, and this is around 1990 or so? 1989, yeah. So almost a decade before uh, The Truman Show even came out. Who are you? I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. And who am I? You're the star. Do you remember when you first saw uh, the Truman Show? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it in a theater when it came out? It was out? not in a theater, which is something I, I regret a little bit. It was a VCR, and to say I sort of got sucked into the story would just be a ridiculous understatement. I just all of a sudden, so much of what had happened to me was something that somebody else could depict. And it came out before reality TV had really exactly. exploded. And the following year, a, di- a movie that I, I can imagine also might have struck you uh, in a special way came out, which was The Matrix. Did you see The Matrix? Did I see The Matrix? <laughs> <laughs> are, are my kids sick of me making them watch The Matrix with me yeah, again? Yes. Yeah. What I like about The Matrix is everything, but but certainly the the... The ontology not being obvious and things not being... Meaning the nature of reality. For listeners who don't yeah, aren't familiar just, with the word ontology. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see, then real is simply electrical signals interpreted by your brain. So part of me can't let go of that. Part of me is so into this, what if nobody really knows what's going on and what if some of what I believe is actually as right as any other belief system. 
How do I behave normally when I have these beliefs with nobody to talk to about them? Uh, Mary's book describes several remarkable episodes of your delusion, uh, what you call being on the show, like when you stole the truck in Tokyo as a member of the U.S. Goodwill team in this uh, big sailing competition. So you just suddenly break off from your teammates, convinced you had these certain obligations uh, for the show. And that's where it's hard for people to imagine that your brain can keep confirming something that's clearly not true. Right. Once you're all in, you're all in, and you need something from the outside to tell you that it's not true. And I was able to wander back and find the team at the hotel just before they were getting on the bus to go back to the airport. Things were looking really good, and then something just snapped, and I got really agitated, and I ran out the baggage carousel and onto the tarmac and under the first plane I found. So I was under a 747, and that's where I got arrested. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, before 9-11. Yeah, all right could easily have been shot. As, the, as this is happening, are you under the impression that other people, strangers on the street, are also in on the show? Yes. Everybody's in on it. And yeah. everything I'm doing is because I'm supposed to do it, and I'm supposed to do it to make a good scene for the show. And I'm making a good scene for the show so that people become more aware of how fine the line is between comfortable and uncomfortable life. Right. And a lot of these episodes in the book, it would have been impossible to corroborate every single thing because in some cases he was the only one in the moment. But we pulled uh, medical records. I interviewed other people who had been there. So maybe that was his then-girlfriend, now-wife, Amanda. Maybe that was his teammates. Memory is very fickle, and it's very complicated. And the best of circumstances, and I, I give Kevin a lot of credit because he would say sometimes, like, I know this sounds crazy, but I think I saw the color pink. Or, like, I know that this sign probably didn't actually say this, but this is what I saw. So the end notes for this book are quite lengthy because I felt like readers should know where things came from, but that the nature of truth is that it's it's you're choosing a truth in some ways. And so all of this was going on. I have to say, as a reporting endeavor, it was by far the most existential thing I'd ever done. And then the election happened right you know, halfway through or a little later than that. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I've just been thinking about reality TV and alternate realities and technology. And, and lies and delusions. <laughs> for, for a long time. And, and also, you know, when you walk around, you see people with their smartphones. And, yeah. Obsessed with Instagrams. And, and talking to no one, apparently. Right. And mm -hmm. I just had so many moments where I thought, well, do we all have Truman Show disorder? Like, do yeah. we all have this? How crazy is Kevin? I mean, what is Instagram if not you creating your own PR Show. firm, right? Yes. And, right, and, right, right. You know, Dr. Joel Gold and um, his brother Ian Gold wrote this fabulous book called Suspicious Minds. Who which, coined this. Who coined this term. term. And um, then one of the things I think is so fascinating about their work is really broadly, they're looking at how is culture shaping the narrative spine of these delusions that not just someone like Kevin has, but all of us have to some degree. And how how is that formulated? And how is the stuff that we're ingesting staying in there and coming coming out in different ways? This is your parental hub. I'm just pairing it with Sarah's implant. Now tap this icon here mm -hmm. to relay her optic feed. This is what she's seeing now? That's right. Whoa. <laughs> Do either of you watch Black Mirror? Yes. Love it. Love uh, it. <laughs> and, and it seems to relate to our conversation. The the fungibility of reality in in a in a digital world which sets up all kinds of other issues that that we just haven't faced in the past. Absolutely. And you know, Kevin repeatedly would joke with me about kind of calling himself the village idiot. And when I left this reporting process and I would argue it's still going on, 
I left with more questions about the village than the idiot, actually. I felt like for the last you know, few years, I've just walked around and thought, we all have this. We all are in some version of the show. Technology is impacting us in different ways. Um, and that our brains are these really complicated things that we, we should fully explore. Kevin, you love these, these pop cultural depictions uh, that jibe with your relationship uh, to reality. You're also a big fan of James Joyce's novel, Ulysses. Stephen jerked his thumb towards the window, saying, That is God. Hooray! I re What? Mr. D.C. asked. A shout in the street? Stephen answered, shrugging his shoulders. For me, Ulysses was a lot of things. One was just the freewheeling language and just feeling like I was in his head with him. And wow, that's... It sounds pretentious to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. That's how my mind works a lot of the time, and it's there's a comfort there. And just a way of kind of looking at the world, you know, that, that God can be as simple as a shout or a bark or a soccer kick in the street. Like, sometimes that's how it feels to me. Like, just that clap happened right then, and wow. And I, I get that from Joyce's writing, and it, it's comforting. David Foster Wallace, also in the in the Kevin Hall pantheon of important uh, uh, storytellers. Uh, same-ish reasons? Absolutely. Yeah. His writing and his courage to keep facing what was clearly a big challenge for him having a brain that was three planets big, not just one. Like, he kept facing that, and that's hard. Mary, when he started talking about James Joyce and David Foster Wallace, too. What, what did you make of that? Did that just make it, this guy is really interesting? <laughs> You know, I, I, I'm i a big, obviously, reader, um, and I'm a big fan of fiction and storytelling. And I think that this, you always hear these kind of platitudes about how it connects us and it creates empathy. And this project and working on this um, really connected those dots for me a lot more closely, that like a hand from the past could reach out from pages and grab you. And um, Kevin wasn't the only person who said, I read Wallace and Joyce like it's a secret language. And for me, when I read either of them, I mean, I, I enjoy it, but I, I have to work at it. You know, I have to be really focused. I often will do it with a pen in hand and looking up stuff. When Kevin and other folks I've talked to talk about reading it, it's like they're just tearing through it and they, they're ingesting it in a way that um, is really powerful. Kevin, uh, millions of people, especially in America, act on directions that they think they're hearing. Um, but they call the director God. Uh, do you think about that kind of religious belief in terms of your illness? I think not having a connection to some mystery and not wondering if there's something is a bummer. <laughs> Could, couldn't, <laughs> agree, go with bummer. Um, couldn't agree with right. you more. So, that just doesn't necessarily mean that I will then speak in tongues. Right. So so where is that beautiful gray area where your belief is and your make-believe are something that, that empower you and ennoble you and help you want to give back? And where is that? And... I connected with wanting to help a lot. I just didn't do it in a super um, healthy way at the beginning. And I'd like to have a do-over on that because I would like to help a lot. And I'm getting tools and skills and, and awareness and uh, religious and spiritual thinking that helps me do that. Right. But I, that's new for me. That was Kevin Hall with Mary Pallon, who wrote a book about him called The Kevin Show. It is out right now. 
Five years ago, Joe Weisberg, who used to work for the CIA, co-created The Americans, the FX show set in the 1980s. It's about a pair of Russian spies living as Americans in a suburb of Washington. I was 17 when I joined the KGB. Never had a boyfriend. They put me with you. And then two years ago, back when Donald Trump was merely a contender for the Republican nomination, Joe Weisberg's older brother, the journalist Jacob Weisberg, created a podcast all about him. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the Harvey Weinstein type who still has his job, Donald Trump. The creative pursuits of the Weisberg brothers seem to have not much in common. But then came this about Hillary Clinton's missing private emails in July of 2016. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. After that came our intelligence services conclusion that Russia intervened in the 2016 election in all kinds of ways. So the Weisberg's creative pursuits have lately had a lot in common. The Americans will soon begin its sixth and final season. And Trumpcast is produced by Slate, where Jacob Weisberg serves as chairman and editor-in-chief and where we happen to make this show. So I asked Jacob and his brother Joe to come in to talk about the collision of their fictional and non-fictional creative worlds, the brothers Weisberg. Joe and Jacob, welcome to Studio 360. Thank Thanks, you very Joe. much. Thanks for getting us together. Uh, this is like a movie. I, I, it's still like the Royal Tannenbaums <laughs> meets uh, Burn After Reading, right? Something um, like the children of the Russian spies uh, in the Americans. You guys were adolescents during uh, the Reagan administration. Your parents were not communist spies, as far as I know. Uh, but they were well-known liberals in Chicago. Your mother, Lois Weisberg, became nationally known after Malcolm Gladwell wrote about her in The Tipping Point. You know, it, it's funny, given your introduction, I mean— Joe solved the problem of how do you rebel against tolerant liberal parents. <laughs> it's very hard to do. But if you join the CIA, you can probably succeed in rebelling even against them. And was that some part of the motivation at 20-whatever you were? I think so. Yeah, not consciously. I think it was unconsciously. But our, our parents were also tricky to rebel against in any way because they were so supportive of, of anything we wanted to do that I think that actually even extended to joining the CIA. I don't I, – my father was like, oh, well, that's interesting. Why don't you go and try that? So he, he couldn't – he didn't really have a problem with it. And I think our mother's only problem with it really was that she was just nervous. It just made her a little worried that I would get hurt or something like that, which probably would have been true of anything I did. Right. You join the CIA. You're, you're, you're not long out of Yale, where in the 80s and 90s, not many people were joining the CIA out of Yale like they used to. Now, Jacob, I know your career path. You, I it started over, working for you. It overlapped with mine <laughs> 20 years ago. But uh, give our listeners the highlight rail of what you've done before you became a media tycoon. I had a long career writing about uh, politics. And I started at The New Republic, where I worked for years as an editor and a writer. Then I worked for you at New York Magazine, which was great fun until we both uh, left on short notice uh, unexpectedly in 1996. And then I went to Slate. At some point, I became the editor of Slate. Uh, and then at some point, I just became responsible for the whole thing. And now I'm on the business side. So, Joe, while he's ascending uh, meteorically through the heights of American journalism, you started writing fiction. And then by the time you come up with the Americans, the, the Cold War's been over for— 20 years or more. Um, 
the setting and the idea, the premise must have been distant enough at that point that Hollywood would just say, yeah, let's do it, right? That's what I thought. I, I thought exactly that, but I also wasn't sure. Um, I mean, you wanted to make this show about the past, and what's interesting about it is it takes a, it takes a radical, uh, almost shocking view of the past, and then in many ways the present caught up with it, and people took it to be just by implication, having more to say about the present. And I don't know, it just seemed to me your, your initial reaction to that happening was, that's not, we don't, don't do that. We don't want the show to be about now. We want it to be about looking back in the 80s with new perspective. Well, that's right. It was, it was really horrifying because the whole, you know, political premise was, let's look at the enemy and humanize them. And we can do that now because they're not the enemy anymore. And two years later, they started to becoming the enemy again. And we were sort of in denial because it happened a little bit slowly. But then they really started to become the enemy again. You can Or deny. to some, very, very good friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's uh, look at a scene from season one of The Americans. This is in 1981, uh, less than two months into the presidency, when uh, right after he's... Uh, the assassination attempt happens. And the Soviet spy couple, played by Matthew Reese and Kerry Russell, worry that uh, Alexander Haig, former general, now Secretary of State, uh, who said at the time he was in control here, has the nuclear codes. Philip, can we please move on this now? He's holding a copy of the nuclear football. We need to transmit. All these years, walking these streets, living with these people, you still really don't understand this place. Hay could have 10 nuclear footballs. This still wouldn't be a coup. Really? Yes, really. And if we send that to Moscow, they will go on high alert. And our command control isn't quite state of the art. We will escalate. They will escalate. This thing will spin out of control. So could you please, can you please just try and get yourself in a different way of looking at it for one minute? You think you understand things so much better than I do. Why? Because you look good in an American suit? What? Because everybody loves talking to you because you think like the kids do? No, that's not what I because think. Because I fit in just fine. But I remember where I came from. Not having all of these things. It being about something bigger than just myself. I remember too. That doesn't blind me to what's in front of my face. I know how the Americans do things and Al Haig isn't taking over the government. You don't think they're all about lies and conspiracy like everybody else? Because they are. Why do you think that they're so different, that they're so pure? I don't. But the last two times our leaders died, our government pretended they weren't dead for weeks. Things are different here. Uh, I loved that scene then, and as I'm... I, that plays well after <laughs> now. <laughs> I'm saying, like, you, you look at this differently three years later. Um, uh, and, and, and by the way, would a KGB agent then, do you think, was that plausible for him to be, hey, America is better than the, the Soviet Union in that way that he's arguing with his wife and mansplaining to her about uh, how, how good America is? <laughs> of the 10 illegals who uh, were arrested in, in 2010. Which is to say these spies who'd been in the U.S., like your character. Uh, right, exactly, time. exactly. The, the germ of this show. Right, right. You sort of get a little bit of a feeling that the possibility for them to have gone somewhat native was certainly there. So I can't really say if it did happen or not, but I, I feel comfortable saying it could have. So on your show, uh, the actors Carrie Russell and Matthew Reese play these two Russian spies who are supposed to pretend to be married as their characters, and then their characters fall in love and have children. But then how meta, those actors actually fall in love and in real life become a couple. 
and have a kid. Yeah, what are you going to say about that? That's. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think there's no way to watch the show and not see that there is an incredible chemistry between them. So, in a way, it's hard not to wonder if they didn't in real life have that chemistry, would they possibly have that just as actors? I have no answer to that question. But there's something so real between them. Yeah. There was I remember there was one review, I think, from the first season saying this show's really interesting, but the the, the leads just don't have any chemistry. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> um are all your scripts you, you when I talked to you when the show began, you said, Oh no, I'm gonna send them all to the CIA. Do you still do that? Yeah, they all go. Have they ever said, no, you don't do this? Uh, occasionally very small, little tiny things. Once years ago on a different project, I sent them something and they said, you can't do this. Whole project is out. It's all classified. And so I was upset. So I wrote back and I said, what's the problem? And they said, here's the problem. And I was like, I literally took out 1% of the project, sent it back, and they said, great, now you can do it. Huh. So I learned from that that they're very easy to work with and deal with. And on this show, it's it's been great. And they've been also very helpful. Like, we need stuff often turned around very fast so that we can film it. They're very helpful with that. They rush stuff for me. It's been great. I suppose they have a department that just does this. Publications Review Board, the PRB. Um, of course they do. <laughs> um, so, uh, Jacob, after, I guess, Joe had done four yeah. seasons, the election's happening— and and you decide uh, early in 2016, right? Like, oh, we should do this 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 regular podcast about Donald Trump. Yeah, we started in March 2016. I'd actually wanted to do it for a while before, but it, we kind of launched it at the point where it looked like Trump had an actual chance of being nom- nominated. But not wrapped up yet. No, no. I mean, and I thought we would do the show f- until sanity <laughs> reasserted itself and the Republicans nominated Jeb Bush or somebody else. A limited series. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then well, then he got nominated. And, you know, my assumption, my my illusion guess, like, ever, like everyone else's, was that, well, he would almost certainly lose the election and we'd be done in, in uh, November 8th, 2016. And I really didn't seriously contemplate the idea that it would go on, but it was the shtick of the show that we would be around as long as he was. So here we are, you know, f- d- having done it for later. almost uh, almost two whole years. But, like the athlete who grows the beard. It's like, I'm not cutting my beard. Yeah, exactly. win again. And then like, <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing is, so keeping the show going indefinitely presented a number of problems. Um, one is just immersing yourself in the toxicity of Donald Trump at, at length and how you can keep that from poisoning your life and outlook. And another that that occurred to me pretty early on is that I have to say I find Trump himself very uninteresting. Ronald Reagan was a fascinating character. It's a mystery. You People would be speculating, having interesting theories and ideas about Ronald Reagan until the end of time. Donald Trump... If you've read a couple articles about him and watched them on TV, There's you've no probably surprises. got him figured out. There's yeah. no mystery. Yeah. There's no surprise. We've, we've cracked that case. We, we have a pretty good idea. There are variations, but you, you, you're not going to learn a whole new thing. So how do you keep a show about Donald Trump interesting? Well, the show is very much now about what's swirling around Trump, around Trumpism, around all the issues related to Trump. And you sort of have to go at it orthogonally because a show that – just told you what to think about Donald Trump day after day would be both unenlightening and kind of painful to do because you would just be in that place of Donald Trump's mind. You've also started including uh, great original bits of uh, satire in Trump cast. Here's a piece you did uh, right after it was reported that the now former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson had referred to the president 
um, uh, as a fucking moron. Good afternoon. Some have expressed disappointment that I did not categorically deny calling the president a, quote, moron in my press conference yesterday. I'd like to offer a clear denial now, along with a more complete list of other remarks that have been falsely attributed to me. So I never referred to the president as a, quote, moron, end quote. Nor did I refer to him as a, quote, fucking moron, end quote. I never said that he, quote, wouldn't have lasted a day at Exxon, end quote. I never remarked that he, quote, couldn't find Saudi Arabia on a map, even if that map were only a map of Saudi Arabia, end quote. I never expressed frustration that, quote, all items in the Oval Office have been scaled down to two-thirds normal size so that the president never has to feel as though his hands look small, end quote. I never shouted, quote, enough about the damn electoral map, end quote, after 45 minutes of talking about the electoral map during a security briefing. I never referred to the president as, quote, a butthole's butthole. (laughs) (laughs) That was by Steve Waltine, who also performed as Rex Tillerson, right? Yeah, that was that's a shtick he's been doing. Um, <laughs> Steve Waltine is a brilliant guy. His day job is writing for the opposition with Jordan Klepper. Um, but I met him when he was still working at Second City in Chicago. And uh, he volunteered to, to start writing these sketches for Trumpcast. And uh, I have to say, they're so delightful. Yes. Now, now Joe, when we watched that uh, clip earlier, we all watched it differently in the light of Trump, Russia, present day. Now that people watched the fifth season differently because of that, we'll watch your final season differently because of that. Did it or does it change the way you guys think about and write the show? And let's let's not do that because that'll seem like we're referring to this. Maybe a little. We, we, we're very, very good at keeping ourselves in a bubble so that we write the stories and, and work on the scripts and, and make sure that we – don't let what's happening today influence it because anytime we feel like you could feel that sort of cleverness or cuteness of somebody writing with an awareness of modern politics, we think it bumps you out of the story. So we really try to avoid it. No we, metafiction. No, exactly. The The only time it, it might influence us uh, – uh, my partner Joel came up with this example, which I thought was a perfect one, that we might have – were Donald Trump not – such a important character today, we might have actually had the idea of putting him in the show. I've he been would have been begging like a you perfect, to do that on social media for two years. Yeah, he would have been a perfect period reference. Completely. But we can't put him in the show because— Really? Yeah, we can't put him in the show. There's been reporting that he went to—I didn't—who knew? He went to Moscow in 87. He was trying to build things. The KGB knew of it. You know, he was this swinger with a Czech wife. <laughs> Elizabeth would have slept with him. It would have all been great if he weren't—if he had a run what, for not, president. Now you'd be like, oh, those guys are trailing to really make a point about Donald Trump, which, you know, then you'd stop, then your head would get out of the story. (sighs) Sorry. Can't do it. Uh, Well, (laughs) that makes me very sad. But uh, but maybe I'll do some fan fiction. (laughs) How about that? I would like that. And when's the final episode of Trumpcast? 
<laughs> Please, 2020. Yeah. Uh, to January, January 21st, uh, 2021. No, but if not, you'll keep You going. know, one thing I've learned from doing the show and just being around politics, stop making the damn predictions. Jacob and Joe Weisberg, uh, this has been a, a great, great pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Us too. Thanks, Thanks Kurt. Joe Weisberg is the co-creator of The Americans, which begins its sixth and final season on FX on March 28th. Jacob Weisberg is editor-in-chief of the Slate Group and the creator of Trumpcast, on which he alternates hosting duties with Virginia Heffernan and Jamel Bowie. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. I'm Kurt Anderson. And, babe, I'm leaving. I must be on my way. Babe, I love you. Thanks for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, the guy who put the in the lightsaber. Oh, that hum sounds dangerous. Ben Burt, the movie sound effects legend behind Star Wars, E.T., and WALL-E. WALL-E's voice starts with my voice. Wow. And is highly processed. The whole world of sound. Next time on Studio 360.